Welcome to season three of the Surrender Podcast. I'm Craig Petty. And I'm Charlene De Los Santos. Together, we're the directors of Surrender, a collective of people and organizations carrying a message to motivate, support, and equip us to live out the radical call of Jesus amongst the margins. In this podcast, we're providing a platform for conversation and storytelling, as we hear from some friends who embody this message. While we might not always agree with everything we hear from one another, what we desperately want to do is create a space to listen and to learn and to find Jesus in the centre of it all. Charlene and I have both been part of a World Vision Leaders cohort and were part of an inspiring conversation with Daniel Wordsworth recently. We loved it so much we got permission to share it here in our podcast today. Daniel Wordsworth became CEO of World Vision Australia earlier this year after spending 25 years in the world's conflict hotspots. Daniel has lived and worked with the urban poor in Australia, Hong Kong, China, India, Vietnam and Thailand and has written numerous publications on children and poverty. He started his career in the Royal Australian Navy. Nodi Sharma hosted this stimulating conversation and we'll go to that now. Um, very good. So, Daniel, it's um, it's awesome to have you here. And um, rather than me actually rabbiting on and doing a really bad job of trying to introduce you and tell you a massive, tell your story, you're much better at that than I will be. So let me just say this: I know, Daniel, that um, you have uh, in your bio. There's talk about the fact that you had this incredible encounter with uh, with Jesus, and we're reading through um, the Sermon on the Mountain. It just changed the direction of your life, and and somewhere in there is this little like snippet that basically says you met Mother Teresa and you know actually ended up working at Cutter and with the poor. Now, I mean, it caught my attention immediately, and I know you have a cracking story about Mother Teresa. So I want to start by saying, mate, can you share that with us? Sure, thank you. It's nice to see you all. I do. Um, it's great to catch up. Yeah, I'll just say one thing um, just to, to ground what I'm about to say and then I'll, I'll talk to you about the Mother Teresa bit, yeah. Um, because actually, and the Mother Teresa, I'm going to tell you the second, I'm going to tell you the whole story, but I'm going to tell you the second half. And normally I don't tell the second half. I keep that one in reserve, yeah. Um, and in a way, have you heard of these artists that paint the same painting over and over again? You know, and they just see it a different way and they're just trying to perfect it. I'm, I have been and have been for the last 30 or more years an artist who's painting the same picture over and over again. And it's largely based on the observation that you're going to hear. I'll tell you about Mother Teresa. But the, the grounding for me is that I've spent the last 25 years in, uh, I've been away from Australia and I've spent all of that time uh, basically working in all, um, all of the places that we would characterize as the worst places in the world. So every major conflict, disaster, almost any large-scale bad thing that's occurred in the last 25 years, I've either been there myself or I've sent teams there or I've been around it. So whether that's Congo, Somalia, Darfur, El Salvador, Colombia, East Timor, the Sri Lanka, the tsunami, Ebola, um, every major refugee camp, the Rohingya, all of those places I've been to many times in most cases and, or lived there, Afghanistan, all of that stuff after 9-11. So what, I'm, what I'll be bringing to you is from that. Yeah. So, uh, and I felt originally called, I, as Nadi said, I 
I became a Christian before this, but I, I, I understood what it meant when I read the Sermon on the Mount. I was in the Navy and I was on a ship and I read it and I understood it. I, was, I just summarized it like this. I understood it for the first time. I understood that God was on the side of the poor, right? And on the side of the suffering and on the side of the needy. And uh, I decided I wanted to be on their side too. Now, what's curious about that is um, I felt initially that was my calling. So I've spent the last 25 years trying to find the poorest, right? Trying to find the neediest. I have gone like to great lengths on this, I gotta say. Yeah. Anytime there was a situation that was truly appalling, I made a point of being there. Yeah. And more recently, like the migrant crisis that you saw with Donald Trump, we, I don't know if you saw the stadium where all the migrants came up in the big caravan and they were all on the border and there was a great hullabaloo. I went down and was hanging out in the stadium with them. So, and I most recently working with trans refugees in Nairobi, for example. If you want to talk about a group of people who are absolutely and utterly disenfranchised and excluded, a trans refugee is ground zero for that because they're the only refugees that other refugees try to kill. Yeah. Normally refugees band together. And so I've worked, I spent 12 months working every week for a few hours every week with the group of lesbian and trans refugees, because again, my journey was to find the poorest and those that suffer the most. But, and then here's the funniest thing. I'm now sitting here in Melbourne. Yeah. And actually I think, and it's exactly the It's not the calling didn't change. Yeah. And so now I'm here. Right. So, and I, I think I'm, I'm going to get onto this and talk about why I think I might be here, but who really knows? It's part of a calling. Yeah. So, I'm not going to go into the Mother Teresa story. So, earlier in my um, time, I was wanting to help poor people. So, I just, I just opened a house in Sydney and we just took put people off the street and we started looking after them in Pimble, and which is a weird place to do it. But this, the, you know, where we found this giant house and we just took kids in off the street and people out of prison, et cetera. And as part of that, I, was, I went on a set of pilgrimages to meet people that were important to me. So I was trying to model my life around Francis of Assisi, Mother Teresa and Oscar Romero and a person called Bruchko. I don't know if you've all read the book, Bruchko, about the guy that disappeared in Colombia. I also went and visited him in Colombia, which is another story for another day. But one of the people I wanted to meet was Mother Teresa. So in 1992, uh, I went to Calcutta and um, I woke up, try to jump into this real quick. I didn't really know where Mother Teresa was, but at the time I figured that everybody in Calcutta would know where Mother Teresa was. So I didn't bother getting the address. I just landed in Calcutta. And then I asked the taxi driver, take me to Mother Teresa. And sure enough, everybody knows. She's like, you know, at the time, people are quite famous. I still is. And so the taxi driver took me there and we pulled up in front of this sort of weird like alley and cement wall. And I was like, no, you're not understanding my English, you know, Mother Teresa. And he was pointing down the alley and I was like, this is Mother Teresa, right? This should be like a cathedral and all the works. And he's pointing down the alley. And so I walked down the alley and then I'm thinking I'm being set up, right? I'm going to get like mugged as I go down this alley, but I'm walking down and it's getting darker and darker. And I think, how on earth could this be where Mother Teresa is? And yet, at one point, I then look on the wall and there's a door. And actually, you can Google it. If you Google Mother Teresa's door, you can see exactly what I looked at. And it was just a wooden door in the side of his wall. And I, had, and I looked at it and it had a little, it has a sign about that big. And it just has written in white, Mother Teresa. And it has a hole in the, the, the door frame and a chain comes through it. 
And I thought, this cannot be where Mother Teresa lives. Yep, it's just this boring alley and it's just a single brown door and a little writing Mother Teresa. So I thought, I better, because I've come all this way, I better just double check. So I pull on the chain and, you know, two or three minutes later, the door opens and there's a sister of charity, right? They wear a white uh, garment that has blue um, stripes down the bottom. And there, there was a sister of charity. And I thought, I've got, and I said, this is, I've got the right place, right? And, I, and she said, what's your right place? And I said, is this where Mother Teresa lives? She said, yes, this is where the mother lives. And then I said, um, okay, um, thank you. And then I stood back. It's like one or two steps on the door. And then she said, uh, what are you, uh, like, can I help you? And I said, no, you don't need to help me. I've, I've just come from Australia and I'll, I'm going to stand on the step for the next two or three hours. And then she said, what do you mean you're going to stand on the step for the next two or three hours? And I said, I just want to be near Mother Teresa. And so if you don't mind, I'm going to stand on the step um, because this is where she lives. And then she said, you don't need to be sort of weird about it, right? Like the mother's here right now. And I said, that's even better. Like now I can stand here. I'm not only standing near where she lives. I'm going to be standing near where she actually is. Yeah. And then she said, well, why don't you just come up and say hello? Would you like to meet the mother? And then I thought it was like the most amazing thing ever. So I said, of course, I would love to meet the mother. But I'm very embarrassed. I said, I know she's like super busy and she's got all this stuff going on. She doesn't need to meet me. I'm perfectly happy to stand on the step. Yeah. And then she said, no, you don't need to stand on the step. Come upstairs. So she took me upstairs. She sat me on this little bench where Mother Teresa lived. It was like a sort of like a Mediterranean style thing. It's a multi-story building that has a big opening in the middle. If you've ever seen the pictures of it, the it's got a tiled floor where they bathe on the bottom. So I was up one of those levels and I'm sitting on a little wooden stool and there's a door about two or three metres away from me on my left and suddenly the door opens and there's my mother Teresa standing in the doorway and behind her is her bed, right? So you're actually, I'm looking in her bedroom and then she comes out. She's very tiny. She's all bent over. I leap up like it's... Um, Justin Bieber, right? So I'm like leaping up. Oh, my God, it's the mother, it's the mother. And then she's like, what on earth is happening? So she's like, uh, calm down, calm down. Because I'm at this stage, I'm like 26 or something. Yep. So she goes, calm down, calm down. She sits me down. She sits down next to me and she says, why? Okay, who are you? I say, like, she goes, why are you here? And then I say, well, I want to be like you. And then she, and, uh, and I want to, um, so I came here just to stand near where you uh, live. And then she said, um, well, that's not how you be like me. Yeah, if you want to be like me, you don't get it by, and then I, and I, she said, you don't even get it when you meet me. She said, if you want to understand who I am and what we're doing here, she said, you need to spend the day. How long are you here in Calcutta? And I said, three days. And she said, you need to go down and spend it at Calicut, which is the first hospice that she had where they helped the dying. And she said, you need to just be there. And if you spend three days there, you'll understand uh, much more than standing on my step or talking to me here on this um, bench. So I said, great. And, but I said, I'm very embarrassed because I've come here and it's like, you're busy and the sisters are all busy. And like, I was happy to be on the step. She said, no problem, we'll organize this. She called her sister over. She organized this. But then she said to me, um, and I'm trying to, I'm rushing this a little bit. She said to me, um, where do you stay in your hotel? I said, I don't know, someplace called the Fairlawn Hotel. And she said, do you know how to get back there? And I said, I have no clue how to get back there. And she said, well, we'll also look after you that way. And she said to the sister that was standing there, get that Irish boy who's here to show him the way back to the hotel. So, and then she left. So I said, thank you. 
And the sister brings up this Irish boy. Now the Irish boy was 32, so he, to me, he's like, you know, he's a grandfather. But he, he comes up and, um, and he says, I'm meant to take you back to your hotel. So we're walking back. Now, Calcutta in the early 90s, I don't know if you ever went there, was just a, was a madhouse, madhouse. Begging, the noise, the, the, was the craziest city on earth. And uh, we're walking back and he's asking me about him and I'm asking about him. And he's saying, I'm an architect. I work in Dublin. For nine months of the year, I'd be an architect. And for three months of the year, I come here and I work with the dying. And that's how I cleanse my soul. And he said, what do you do? And I said, well, I look after street kids and I have his house and blah, blah, blah. And then he, at one point, stops me. And he says, um, I think you're the one. I go, what? So you can imagine just the craziness all around, right? We're walking back. And it's like people, there's people like this around you. He says, he grabs me by the shoulder, turns me around, says, I think you're the one. I go, I'm the I'm what one. He goes, I think you're the one that I'm going to tell. And I go, I'm the one you're going to tell? He goes, yeah, you're the one that I'm going to tell. Now, his face is like this to my face because it's so noisy. So I'm like creeped out. It's like that Seinfeld episode, you know, with the guy that's like got no, um, you know, that. it's like that. I'm like, what's up with this? He goes, I'm going to tell you. He goes, I've just told you I've spent the last 10 years coming here for nine months every year or something. A long time. I mean, six, seven years. I don't know. But a long time. He's been coming here every year. And he said, I, I told you I spent three months in the color cut where you're going and I said, yeah, no, I got it. I got it. Great. That's fantastic. I'm like, I'm so envious of you. And he said, that's not what I'm saying. He said, what you don't realize is the, the mother's always there. So I'm like, that's great. He says, she's always in there. So he said, I got, I've had the chance to spend three months of every year for the last, I don't know how many years with the mother. And, I, and then I said, that's, well, that's like, how fortunate are you? And he's like, no, 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 you're not getting it still. I've seen something. And then I thought, oh, no. You're going to ruin this for me, aren't you? He goes, I've seen something and I've, I haven't been willing to tell anyone else, but I think you're the one I'm going to tell what I've seen. And then I'm like, um, I don't know that I want to hear this. He goes, but I have to tell you, I have to tell you. And he comes right up to me. And then he gets all conspiratorial. Like he starts looking like this. I think I'm going to tell you, I've seen something. And then I go, okay. He says, um, he goes, with me and you, when we help people like this, poor people, we do it because we love them, right? We, we love people, right? I go, uh, yeah, that's why we do it. He says, um, so we see like the person, right? Yes. Then he looks around. He says, I don't, it's not the same. It's, that's not what the mother sees. And then he's like real weird. And then he leans right in. And he goes, because he's not a Christian guy. Yeah. He says, I think when she sees them, and then he pauses, looks back, gazes around a little bit, comes right up close to me, and then he whispers, I think she thinks it's Jesus. And then he steps back and looks at me like, well, what do you make of that? And then I'm like, high five. <laughs> So what, I know you all know this, yeah. but what if it's true? This is a, it wasn't like I wasn't familiar with this idea either, but this guy's not a Christian. He didn't know that she was meant to do it that way. He was basing it on observation. 
He said, after watching her for months on end, when she's kneeling next, and what you end up doing is you kneel there and you sing to them and you feed them and you clean, you wash their toilet away and all that's what you do. Yeah, that's what she does every day. Washes their bottoms, things like that. She said that his observation was that um, she thinks it's Jesus. So then I thought after that, what if that's like, that's who Jesus is? Yeah. And so the painting that I've been painting ever since is trying to understand that. What does it look like if you were to actually truly believe that? What would that look like? So that's the last part of the story, Marty. And, uh, it's a ripping story, Daniel. Thank you. And Scott, you've obviously been there. Scott just got up a picture of that door for you, Daniel. So, oh, you did. <laughs> um, so no, that, that is awesome. Daniel, I, I, I know... Um, oh, I'm still getting my head around that story. That's amazing. Uh, I know that you have been away for, for a long time, but you are an Australian boy, right? You were actually born in, in Tamworth and, and then left. Um, so I'm interested. Your picture of what was going on in Australia and especially in, within the church in Australia from a distance versus now coming, kind of coming home and, and being here in amongst it for the last eight months or so, um, you know, what, what are some of the observations you've made? What, what do you see uh, that maybe we haven't been able to see because we haven't been separated from it? Yeah, I have a special privilege. Yeah, I've had a special privilege. And, uh, and so I would bring it back. And I, I'm going to ask you guys, I think I, I, I'm fundamentally, I've come to the conclusion that how you answer three questions makes all the difference. And right now, as far as I can see, the whole world is answering these questions wrong. But in particular, the evangelical church is answering these questions wrong. And we are, and it is, it is worse if we answer them wrong. We're meant, to be, we're meant to be the ones answering this right. Now, the special privilege that I have is that um, whilst I have not personally suffered, I have been everywhere where the world's worst suffering occurs. And I've spent 25 years immersed in that, totally immersed in that. And what I have learned through that, actually, I've passed through that. Like that suffering is like a veil. And then if you push through it and you stay in it long enough, what you discover is something quite remarkable. Yeah. And um, so I've observed three things. And so when I come back to Australia, I think I'm being brought back here to ask these questions. But, I'm, but I particularly want to ask you of you in the church. Yeah. And I think we're our own worst enemy on this. Yep. So here's my first, so I'll give you one of my questions. When I was in the stadium that I mentioned with the migrants, I was talking to two young men who were Hondurans. Yep. And one of them said to me, um, you know the story I'm talking about, the caravan, right? There was like 5,000 people that came up. It was big in the news. Trump sent the military down. It was a giant thing during the uh, midterm elections in the US. And so I was in the stadium with them, and these two Hondurans were there. And um, one of them looks at me and says, is it true? I was asking him questions. And then I said, you can ask me some questions. And he said, okay, I have a question for you. Is it true that the Americans have sent an army against us on the other side of the border? And I said, well, it's true and not true. The army wasn't actually, this was in Tijuana where I was and where the army was, was closer to Juarez. So I, I was just like, it's true that the Americans have sent an army down, but it's not directly over the border that you can see. You can actually see the wall there. And, um, he then just shook his head and he looked at me and he just said, um, I'm just, 
I'm just a small person. I just want a little piece of earth to make a life in. Yeah, and he, and he just, he, basically, I'm not worth all your trouble. I'm not worth all your trouble. But what struck me was a, is a key question. I just want a little piece of earth to make my life in. Yeah. Now, here's the question. And in, in my view is that's the most fundamental right of a human being. And if we believe that a human being is created and put on earth, then it is not, it is a, it is a deeper right. And that is surely there's a piece of earth for that person. Is the world, is that, that young guy too heavy for the earth to bear? Is his life too heavy a burden for us to share with him? This is a real question for you. So here's my first question. Is there enough? Is there enough? Is there enough money? Is there enough land? Is there enough love? Is there enough imagination? Is there enough will? Is there enough goodness? Is there enough of all things on this earth? Right now, the evangelical church is answering that question, no. No. This is a scarce world. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. There's only a certain amount. We need to put up walls. We need to put people on islands. We need to, like, there is not enough to go around. We are being, our, our insufficient resources are being overwhelmed, and we have to draw a line somewhere. And I'm saying after spending, I say this for two reasons. One, I would not accept it even if it was true. But it's not true. This is the most remarkable thing. This is what I've learned over 25 years. I just would have started off by going, I'm not going to accept it even if it is true. We all need to cut up the land so that we can all fit. But now that I've been in all these places, there's more than everything you can possibly imagine. Has anyone here seen the Burj Khalifa? The Burj Khalifa is like a mile high, and most of it's empty. It's the largest building in the world is in Dubai. Most of it's empty. There is more money. Within two miles of where I'm sitting is enough money to do this is an abundant, remarkable world. With, and then people go, what do you mean by abundant? Do you mean spiritually abundant? I say, no, abundant simply means more than you think. And they go, what do you mean more than you think? So I go, is there enough money in the world? More than you think. Is there enough? Do you know that if the entire world's population was crowded together in one city, it would be less than the size of the state of Texas in the US? The whole world got gathered together into one city, half the size of the state of Texas. There is plenty of space. There is more than enough for everybody. The world is abundant. Now we have to make a decision around this. Is there enough? And the truth is there's more than enough. We have to decide that. And we have to then orient our whole thing to that. The second question is this. This is a hard one for Christians, evangelicals in particular, because we've been like taken down a route by that Calvin. Are people good? Are people good? I believe it is the most self-evident truth in existence that human beings are profoundly and deeply good. They're given a half a chance. They're beautiful, actually. They're miraculous. They act in miraculous and beautiful ways. Original sin does not imply wickedness. It implies broken relationship. It's simply not true that human beings are wicked and evil and just hot. They're just not. You just look around you. People are desperate to be good. And if given a chance, they just jump at it. Yeah. 
It's the greatest yearning of a human being is to live up to their promise. Every human being knows they're sacred and wondrous. They know it. When they look in the mirror, there's a part of them that just says, I just know I'm meant to be better than what I am. And what unlocks that is belief, yeah? And this is why it's important. If the church thinks they're all sinful, wicked, and like sinners and running away from us, guess what they do? They become it. They become it. Look at what Trump did to the American evangelical church and what Trump did for that whole country. If you think people are wicked, evil, small, mean, and nasty, Human beings go to great trouble to do it, but they, they alienate themselves and they feel horrible doing it, but they will do it. But if you believe people are noble, good, and, um, and uh, profoundly just um, loving and caring, they go to, I tell you, they go to immense trouble to be good. I have seen more goodness. People again ask me after 25 years of seeing all the worst things, how do you stay so optimistic and positive? And it's because what I see is by far an overwhelming amount of goodness. For every one bad person, there's a hundred. I saw a group of 10 children had to have both their hands cut off in Sierra Leone by machetes. But what I saw was a group of 12 and 13 year old children with no hands teaching a group of four and six year old children how to cook and how to go to a toilet and put their clothes on. Yeah, I didn't see the one person with a machete that cut their hands off. I saw all of these children teaching one another how to live a life with no hands. Yeah. And there's many more of them. But this is a question. Do you think people are good? And if you don't think they are, then they will never be in your life good. But if you think they're good, they'll change. I get told all the time this in the church. Oh, Australians, they don't like the church. They don't like Christians. It's all rubbish. It's just rubbish. They go, do you think they would like Jesus? Oh, they'd love Jesus, yeah. Well, then honestly, honestly. And then the third question, and I'll finish on this. Yeah, oh, this, this question, at least, sorry, no. Can we do anything about everything? Can you fix things? Do we have to accept the world the way it is? Do we have to accept what's going on with our First Nations people? Do we have to accept what's going on with climate? Do we have to accept the sort of social exclusion that exists? Do we have to sit up and accept every day the kind of suffering the kids go through around the world? And I think we, we now think it's all Russian bots and it's all Trump and it's all giant world systems and it's all these negative things and the weight is behind it. We just need to like close ourselves off and just look after one. It is absolutely not true. I have been, again, all in the worst places in the world and there's always something you can do. It shocks me that it's true. Again, I didn't know this thing. Now, 25 years on, I'm like, there's always a thing you can do. In fact, there's always like 50 things you can do. It's shocking to me how many things you can do. And when you get like more than one person involved, it's, it, it, it grows in an exponential way. The more in diverse group you have working on a problem, the more remarkable the solution is. It always works. You can always fix things. So my three questions. Do you believe there's enough? Do you believe people are good? Do you believe we can make the world better? You have to answer yes to all three of those. And if you do, I'm just promising you, the world will become like that for you. Yeah? But I'm telling you right now, the message that people are getting is no to all those things. No to all those things. So back to you, Nadi. Thanks, Daniel. That's so powerful and such a, a great thing to be reflecting on, how we're interacting in our own lives. 
And even how we're actually living that out, entering it um, into the communities that we get the privilege of speaking into. You know, um, such a powerful posture to take, Daniel. Thank you. My, I'm, I'm conscious that I want to leave some time for these guys to be able to ask questions of their own to you. But let me, um, let me round it out with this. Um, as you kind of reflect on, on uh, you know, partnerships that you've seen around the globe, especially with the church at, at the centre of it, um, and even for us in World Vision Australia, as we call out the church as being our indispensable partner, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking through what, is, what do we actually mean by that? What does partnership really mean? And I think for us, even as COVID hit, there was this real change and shape shift of, hey, we're, we're not just going to do what we've always done. We, we want to think through differently about what does the future actually look like here? And I've spent a lot of time with these guys and um, in the cohort space and, and Ash too, as we start chatting through, what is that unique contribution that the church and World Vision Australia can actually make that no one else can make? Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts and perspective of just kind of how that might play out, what are the opportunities that exist, where is World Vision Australia heading, and how may the church actually uh, benefit from that, and how may World Vision benefit from that um, relationship as well? Yeah, so I'd ask you this, this, um, this question, right? So if you're me, and I really believe this, and I've, I've now seen it demonstrated so many times, it's not even a belief thing. If you think the world is abundant, it actually becomes it. I, I could sit here now for an hour and I could give you countless examples from all the places. I could just, I could just go on about it. Bro. It's like shocking how true this is. If you think the world is abundant, it becomes it in a, in a like remarkable way. If you think people are good, they, they shock themselves in what they become in response to you. And when you think that the biggest problems can be solved and the littlest problems can be solved, if people just come together and then you suddenly start seeing those solutions, it just all, it just all starts happening. But by the way, the reverse is also true. If you actually think the world is not as scarce and that people are not good and that there's nothing you can do, that's also true. That will be true in your experience. So then the question that I would ask is this. It's, so it's about belief. What is the role of the church then in a society? And I'm, what I'm challenging you with is fundamentally, they, the Australian people should look to us as the ones that believe in them. Because that unlocks goodness. It unlocks abundance. Again, when I was doing the interviews here, people told me, oh, Australians suck now, Daniel. You've been away for 24 years. Australians really suck now. They're all like less compassionate. There's compassion fatigue. They don't care about international stuff. They care to care about local stuff. Blah, blah, blah. I said, all of that. And they said, what will you do in response to that? I said, I'll do nothing in response to that. What do you mean? I go, none of that is true. And they said, well, how can you possibly know that? I said, I said it's not about whether they're Australian or not Australian. It's whether they're people or not. Are these people people? Yes. Then I know it's not true. It's just not. And in fact, I will unlock them then, even if you won, because I believe it. Yeah. And, uh, and that is, that's the choice. Some group in this society have to be the ones standing up saying, we believe in you. We know you're sacred. We know that with God, all things are possible. We, we call you into your greatness through our love and belief in you. Surely that's our role, right? But, they, but the message, the feeling people get the opposite. You don't believe in us. You don't see that in us. You don't think we're sacred. You don't love us like that. 
You want us to jump and change and become something else. And then people become mean around us. But we're the cause of that. That's the point of salt. It's the point of of, um, the loaf and leaven and all that stuff. Then the second thing I would say is this. How do you unlock the kingdom of God? The essence of grace is around. The the world says this, that before you give, you must receive, right? The world says all the time, you need to fill up your own cup first, and then from the cup you have overflow that you can give to others. The kingdom of God says the exact opposite of that. The kingdom of God says you already have. You are a freshwater stream. You already have. That's the essence of the new birth. Give freely. So how do you unlock the kingdom of God? There's one word. Give, 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 pour out, give, love, give. Just pour out. Pour out. Take joy in it. Give. Give freely. I love that's the greatest two words that ever existed. Give freely. And that's what grace is, right? Freely you have received, freely give. That's the essence, that's what grace is. We didn't earn any of that, it was freely given to us. So therefore we freely give. So here's the beauty in the partnership is that it's why I stick, that's why I'm sticking to um, why I love World Vision. We're a give machine. We're a give machine. And it was, you know, the best thing to give to is someone you'll never meet. That's the secret weapon of giving. You know, we call it giving in secret, right? But it's also giving to someone you'll never meet. That's the way I was telling the guys the other day. That's what I love about the Good Samaritan. We make that about how much everybody else sucked by passing by. But it's actually a beautiful story of how lovely the Samaritan was and how perfect their giving was. But the, the comparison between a Samaritan and a Jew was that the Samaritan and the Jew will never cross paths ever again. That person just gave freely, knowing that they'll never get it back and never even meet the person. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. It's the most beautiful form of giving. It's a better poetry than my um, ancestor could have written. And so I think the partnership, the opportunity you always have with World Vision is to, in our churches, I think we just need to be saying, I know all this stuff you hear around you, just give. Let's find a way to just give. It's like priming the pump. For a Christian and for discipleship, it's not all the things you take in, worship, prayer, all this stuff take No. The way you prime a pump in the, Christian, in the kingdom of God, the way to prime the pump is by giving. And then all those other things come back. And so I think a partnership, what we want to do is be a big... And that's so I see my calling now is to be a servant to the idealism of Australian people. But what if we were the servant to the idealism of the people who surround us? We are a servant to their goodness. Our job is to unleash them into their promise. And we do that through giving. That's the essence of the gospel. It's not about receiving, it's about giving. So I'm going to stop there. Not, I know I didn't go into too much, but I would say that's the synergy, which is to unlock truly the kingdom of God amongst. The kingdom of God goes nowhere, but it must be abided in. And then how do you abide in it? You start by giving. Nutty. Thank you, Daniel. That's absolutely brilliant. Um, okay, guys, over to you. I, I want to um, hear what's going on in your heads, in your hearts, any questions that are birthed, any comments you want to make. Great. From, from my point of view, Daniel, they were just some fantastic stories that are causing uh, repentance in my heart for having not always seen people as sacred as you painted them just now. So I want to thank you for that. And for my vote, I could just listen to you tell stories all day. <laughs> 
Daniel, thank you so much for what you shared. I loved those three questions that you um, put to us and I think they're fabulous questions. Do you see that as we uh, embrace those questions for the, for the better, that we would see more inclusion in society and in our churches? Yeah, I think we would see. Um, so here's the beauty, the beauty about inclusion, right? There's a fundamentally a question we have, another question we have to answer, which is around this, which is why does two sex workers and tax gatherers hang around with Jesus? Like, what's up with that? Like, why that group of all groups? They weren't like, you know, there's that, you know, Bob and Mary's, you know, Mary, the local greengrocer, and, you know, Tony, the mechanic. I mean, he had fishermen, but he had to go after the fishermen, right? Why did the tax gatherers and the sex workers naturally hang out with Jesus? Why? Why? And I think I've got another story, which I won't tell because we don't have time now, but it's actually a Mother Teresa story. But there's an answer to this. It's because um, I believe it's because because I've seen this play out. Yeah, that when they were with Jesus, they just thought they were just who they were meant to be. He just made them feel like they were good for just a moment of time. It, of course, they loved Jesus, but it was much more powerful than that. They felt worthy when they were there, and so the inclusion came because the fragrance was so powerful that the mirror that was being shone was a mirror of, again, I, you hear me, I talk, it's the greatest travesty is when a person doesn't think they're worthy. Now that worth does not come in the things they do or in the job they have. It comes inherently in what they're born into, right? They're born sacred, they're a holy object. If you shine a mirror on a person where they suddenly realize they're a holy object, they'll come and have dinner with you. They'll love it. It doesn't take anything from anybody. It doesn't take anything away from the glory of God, that's for sure. So I think that's why if you act this way, what ends up happening is the fragrance becomes very powerful and you don't have to worry about inclusion because everyone will just come and hang out with you because they'll, when they're with you, they'll feel like they're maybe godly and maybe they were worthy of a life and maybe there is a patch of earth for them. So good, Daniel. I think the take-home that Daniel just gave us then is that it starts with us having belief in ourselves that we are inherently good, that we want to live up to our promise, that we want to be generous and we want to be able to change the world. Uh, that, that same standpoint means that you have that inherent belief in yourself before you can give it to others. I remember Wayne Cadero um, many years ago, New Hope uh, in Hawaii there. He was saying that forever in a day he was preaching, preaching, and he was kind of like had the Bible and he was picking out of it and throwing it at people. And he said he had this revelation that actually the Bible was intended for him to pick out of it, apply it, and then it pour out of him and be modelled. And, and I think it's that same principle here. Um, it's, a, it's a fascinating one that's worth playing with, but, you know, totally a challenge. Hey, we are out of time, and honestly, I'm sure all of us would be happy to stay here for the next uh, hour and keep listening to you, Daniel. But uh, we want to honour the time that we put aside. But first of all, just let me say thank you so much for taking time out of your day. Um, thank pleasure. you thank you for sharing thank you for being so um, open and transparent with us we uh, really appreciate you what incredible stories about Mother Teresa and Daniel's life and message itself and what that means for each of us we're grateful to our World Vision hosting partner for letting us share that conversation with you over to you Surrender friends what have you noticed where will you take action Surrender partners with dozens of organizations and hundreds of initiatives. Find them and take action.
at surrender.org.au.